0: We are in week two of our series we launched last week in the Gospel of Mark, Making Disciples, our summer series. We saw that Jesus, of course, is the Master. He calls us to follow Him, to be His disciples. And part of discipleship, part of following Jesus, is inviting others to follow Him, right? A disciple makes disciples. Now, the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels in the New Testament from history, we learn that the author Mark was a a close companion of the Apostle Peter, who recorded his eyewitness accounts. And so we'll notice that the stories involving Peter have unique detail in Mark's gospel. Mark likely wrote his account, if you're interested, from Rome, probably to other Roman and Gentile Christians 20 to 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Mark is the shortest of the four gospels, and so he's going to give us a quick, fast-moving account. But in so doing, he's going to leave out some of the details and stories that you'll find in the other gospels. Um, And as was common in ancient writings, he's sometimes going to rearrange his chronology, emphasize certain things, because look, like all Gospels, the Gospels are not biographies in the modern sense where they start at the beginning and cover every detail up until the end. Mark's book is more like a collage, a collection of scenes and stories and teachings meant to tell us a theological story. And Mark's main focus is going to highlight Jesus' identity as the Messiah, And his universal call for discipleship. This concept that we're all called to follow Jesus as his disciples. And so we're going to spend 13 weeks. We're only going to get through the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel. But in that, we're going to see him launch his ministry, address the crowd, how he reaches the lost and the hurting, how he confronts his enemies, how he calls his followers, and how he sends out his followers. So we're going to stop at chapter 10 for a couple of reasons. One, because we're, we're just looking at a summer series, but also because chapter 11, the, the emphasis of the book changes, uh, Jesus will go into Jerusalem, and what was kind of a broad overview of three years of ministry, in, beginning in chapter 11, is then a close focus on the last week of his life in Jerusalem, heading towards the, the cross and eventually the empty tomb. But we're going to look at that first 10 chapters to see Jesus making disciples. And, and we may from time to time bring in uh, interesting details or perspective from other gospels, but for the most part, I just want us to follow the gospel of Mark and follow his journey. I'm also excited this summer um, that a bunch of the elders and some other leaders from church are going to have opportunities to preach, so you're going to see a little less of me This summer, so some of you can breathe a sigh of relief, Um, but we're excited to have some of the other elders and and leaders share with us this summer as well. So we're going to pick up this morning in verse 21 of chapter 1. It should be page 836 on the the back Bibles, and we're going to follow up and see where Mark left us off. We saw that he laid out how John prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus was baptized, and then, like a herald, he's traveling from town to town reporting the news. The news that Jesus is reporting is that the kingdom of God is at hand to repent and believe. We saw last week he called his first four disciples two sets of brothers fishermen he said follow me and i will make you become fishers of men right their orientation now shifting and so in verse 21 mark is going to really show us the messiah's work and i feel like what's happening at the beginning of the chapter is it's it's like mark is taking us out to the garage and he's like let me show you my muscle car and he told us where it was built and how it was made he lifted the hood and showed us the engine and but now in verse 21 he's like get in, let me take you for a ride. Like, let me show you what this thing can really do, right? And so for these three stories we're going to see here next, really the the, the apostle or the, the the gospel author, Mark, is going to show us what Jesus is capable of, show us his work. And in these three quick stories, we're going to see him as Messiah. We're going to see his his messianic authority being displayed. We're going to see him maintain his messianic mission. And he's going to call us and and walk with us as he guards his messianic identity. So you can follow along in the bulletin in that outline, and, and we're going to pick up in verse 21. I'm going to read in three sections this morning, so we'll just read the first uh, section here in, in verse 21, this first story, and, and I'm going to pause again and just ask for God to be with us. Lord God, we thank you that we gathered together to sit under your word, to receive from you. We thank you for worship that has prepared our hearts, for being able to feast on the body and blood of Christ. And we pray now that our ears and our hearts would be open, that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak through your word. May Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus, now armed with four disciples, goes to Capernaum, he attends the synagogue service on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest, beginning at sundown on Friday through sundown on Saturday, and faithful Jews would gather at the synagogue to pray and worship and hear teaching. Now, synagogues developed during the period of time that that God's people were in exile. They were taken out of Israel hundreds of years prior to this, and, and they could no longer gather at the temple to make regular sacrifices of worship. And so during the period of the, uh, of the exile, synagogues began to form, and the Word of God began to be the focus of the Jewish people rather than the sacrifices. And so when they returned to Israel, they built synagogues all over the land, and that began, began to be the center of people's regular worship. So Jesus is in the synagogue, and verse 22 it says he's invited to teach. And as soon as he begins teaching, everyone realizes there's something different about this traveling rabbi. In fact, it says people are astonished. They are floored. See, here's the deal. People are used to the teaching of scribes, the local officials at the synagogue who would read the scripture, manage the scrolls, and the scribes, I was going to say no offense, but I guess I am offending them. They were boring. They were unoriginal. They didn't have anything new to say. They didn't have any authority or power when they spoke. All that the scribes at the synagogue would do would be to repeat what others had said. And they followed the standard preaching of the time, which was to simply quote the interpretation of other more prominent Pharisees and rabbis. But Jesus is different, right? He teaches and there's authority, And people notice when he says something, it means something. He's not quoting others. Jesus is speaking for himself. Here's what's happening. He reads the Word of God, and then he speaks the Word of God with that same authority. But we notice that the people are not the only ones that that pick up on Jesus' authority. The demons do as well, right? In verse 23, in the middle of him speaking, there's a disruption, and a man who's described as having an unclean spirit cries out. Now, an unclean spirit is a way to describe a demon. So God created heaven and earth. He created human beings in His image. He also created supernatural beings called angels. And some of those angels rebelled against God, fell away from His kingdom, and those are what we call demons. The leader of these demons, Satan or or the devil, is, is just himself a demon. And these angels are agents of God. The true angels are sent to further God's kingdom in the world, whereas demons... Are active in the world during evil, evil afflicting God's people and eroding God's purposes. Demons are continually at work in our lives, in known and unknown ways, tempting us, luring us into sin, deceiving us, convincing us to believe lies, accusing us, beating us up with guilt, and that's the enemy's work in the lives of of unbelievers for sure but even for believers you look at the at the ministry and the work of angels and demons in the scriptures we can see four roles that angels have and they're also active in our lives and demons are basically doing the exact opposite angels worship God and bring honor to God demons slander and dishonor the name of God angels are warriors fighting for God's kingdom demons are engaged in spiritual warfare for the kingdom of evil angels are messengers of God's truth demons are spreading lies, angels are sent out to guard and protect God's children, and demons seek to harm God's people. And so there's this manifestation in a particularly poignant way in this man, he's crying out, he's making a disruption, and the demon immediately recognizes the authority of Jesus. And so in verse 24, the man under the influence of the demon, he yells out, what are you going to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now listen, this is very, very early in Jesus' earthly ministry. Everybody else is still trying to figure out who in the world Jesus is and what he is doing. But these supernatural beings know without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God in the flesh. They call him the Holy One. And when confronted with God on earth, these demons are filled with fear. Right? They think, well, this must be the end. God is here. He must be here to put an end to us. Jesus speaks up in verse 25. He rebukes the man. He says, be quiet and come out of him, you devil. Listen, Jesus did not want the demons to be the one to reveal his identity. He was the holy one, but, but he needed to guard his identity, as we'll unpack a little bit later, and the, the demons were not to be the one to, to do his messaging, Right? And so in verse 26, immediately the man shakes, screams. The demon flees because of the word Jesus spoke, right? Like the time when Jesus is out on the boat and he tells the storm, be silent. He speaks into the life of this man and the demonic oppression stops. Jesus has authority. He teaches with authority and when he speaks, he commands authority. And throughout the ministry of Jesus as he casts out demons As he heals people, as he does miracles, he is validating his authority as the Son of God. He is showing that the kingdom of God has indeed come. It is advancing that the power of the enemy over people's lives is being driven back. Now again, everybody's astonished. They're astonished by the authority of his teaching. They're astonished by the authority with which he casts out the demons. And they don't know what's happening. They know something is happening. And so they say in verse 27, what is going on? What is this? Jesus is bringing a new teaching with authority. He has the power to simply speak and even the demons obey him. Again, Mark is showing us this very first story after he calls his disciples. That Jesus is a Messiah with authority. Jesus is demonstrating his messianic authority. Right, we saw in the very opening chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is the Christ, He's the Son of God. That means He's the Anointed One, come in the flesh, God in the flesh, f- the full manifestation of divinity. And listen, as God, Jesus has authority that is inerrant, that is inherent in all that He does and says. Listen, Jesus didn't have to push people around. He didn't have to raise his voice and yell. He didn't have to convince people. He didn't have to pull out his heavenly ID. He simply spoke and his authority was heard. The demons obeyed. Diseases obeyed. Storms obeyed. And Jesus, from every moment of his life, every waking moment, every sleeping moment, he was in charge. He was in control. He was in authority. No one controlled Jesus. You say, what about when he was arrested? No, no, no. No one took Jesus' life. He himself said that he was the one that was laying it down. There was this time earlier in his ministry where officials showed up to arrest Jesus. And the Bible just says that it wasn't his time to die, and so Jesus simply left. He, he just walked through the crowd and just said, No, you're not, you're not going to take me today. They couldn't stop him. When Jesus did finally get arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, the temple rulers and the officials and the soldiers come. It says that Jesus speaks. He declares, I am. And you know what happens? They all fall down on their backs. Jesus speaks and His authority goes out. He reassures His disciples who want to fight back. He says, no, no. All I need to do is call and thousands of angels would be here to rescue me. This is God's plan. See, Jesus is God, and as God, He has full and final authority over every created being, over heaven, over earth. And His authority was obvious to the people that heard Him speak. Whether they responded or whether they saw Him as a threat, they knew He spoke with authority. It was obvious to the demons, and they were forced to obey Him. Guys, I ask you this morning, is it it obvious to you? Do you recognize Jesus not just as a good teacher, not as someone who showed us the way of love, or or someone who who brings us to God, but someone who is God, who is authority. Do we recognize and submit to his authority? Again, listen, Jesus is not going to puff himself up. He's not going to be loud. He's not going to be intimidating. He he doesn't need to be. He's, He's God. He doesn't have to prove himself. He simply speaks and calls you, calls each of us today, follow me, walk with me, obey me, Now listen, there is a day coming, the Bible says, when he will command obedience, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But today, it's a call. And he says, I am here, I am Lord, follow me. And I think as we hear and as we see the demonstration of the Messiah's authority, it means two things for us. First of all, it means that each of us are called to respond with obedience. When he says, follow me, we follow. When he says, obey me, we obey. That's how a disciple responds to a master. Well, I talked with you last week about the culture of apprentice and, and, and master, of disciple and teacher. They would give them, them their lives to follow, to obey, to serve. That is our disposition in this life. To trust him, trust him as Savior. trust him as Lord, to look to him every moment of every day. For your marriage, for your future, for your business, for your finances, for your internal moral life, look to Jesus. Believe in Him. Believe in Him as Savior. Believe that through His death that we celebrated this morning, you can be forgiven. Through His resurrection, you can be filled with new life and walk in eternity. But listen, Christianity is not just about your ticket to heaven. It's not just to come on Sunday morning and get a motivational speech. It's about every moment of every day to walk with Christ as Lord, as Savior. Respond to His authority. Trust Him. Because the good news of the Gospel is news for you and I that we need to receive every day and remind ourselves it's only by His grace. It's only by His work that we can know God and have meaning in this life. But secondly, it means that you and I now walk as agents of Jesus' authority. Again, not to boss people around and to tell them what to do, but what does Jesus' authority mean to us? What does Jesus Jesus say about His own authority? This is at the end of Matthew's Gospel. You know this passage well. What does Jesus say about His authority for you and I? Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus used his authority to make disciples, and now he tells each of us, each of us as disciples, go make disciples, go make disciples of all nations. My authority now sends you out, and he says, and I am with you, I am with you always, I go with you. And so now in Jesus' name, we go out into the darkest corners of the world, into every neighborhood every workplace, every school, every nation of the earth and proclaim the good news. We push back the darkness. We now call and invite and urge people, come follow Jesus. We stand in Jesus' authority. Yes, that's authority over the influence of the evil one. The book of James in the New Testament says that when you submit to God, when you resist the devil, he will flee. Not because you've said the right words, but because the authority and the power of of the Holy Spirit is in your heart. We now too stand up against the influence of the enemy in our world, in our lives, in our families. So we receive and we respond to the Messiah's authority. Look at verse 28 that we read. It says, the news about Jesus began to spread around the entire region, right? Look, you don't need social media for for the word to spread. The account of what had happened immediately spreads his fame like wildfire. Now you would assume that this is a good thing, but we're going to read in in Mark that Jesus actually tries to stop his fame from spreading. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Just bear with me. We'll unpack that in a little bit. He he tries to stop his fame from spreading. tries to stop the word from getting out too quickly. Look now, if you would, at verse 29 where we'll see him maintain his messianic mission. Read with me in verse 29. Immediately... This is a very interesting story, isn't it? Look, verse 29, he leaves the synagogue. He grows now this group of five. They go to Simon and Andrew's house. Simon is married, the only one of the apostles that we know of that was married. And his mother-in-law is sick, in bed with a fever. Jesus heals her, and immediately this, this woman gets up and goes to work. She starts making them a meal. Word spreads that Jesus is staying there, and that night it's sundown, right? So the Sabbath is now over. People can travel at once Crowds of people show up, people that are physically sick, that are spiritually oppressed by demons. And Jesus begins this this healing ministry that night, prevents the demons from speaking and having influence. And then immediately in verse 35, we're told the next day Jesus gets up early before sunrise. He sneaks out. He goes to find a secluded place by himself where nobody can find him. Why? To spend time with his heavenly Father and to pray. Now likely, when I read this account... of of a Savior who was fully human, Jesus is physically and emotionally exhausted. He's had a busy day, worked late into the night, He, he slept for I don't know how long, but he gets up early enough. Why? To go connect with his Heavenly Father. Remember we heard that word declared at his baptism, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus went to be reaffirmed in his identity, to be reminded of who the Father was, be reminded of his mission. Maybe he was also looking for direction that morning. As, we're, as we read, he's got to make a decision. Does he stay at Simon's house and continue his ministry, or does he go on to other towns and herald the good news? Because already people are back at, at Simon's house that morning, waiting for him. There's needs to fulfill. He could have been there for 10 days and probably not fulfilled all the needs. But Jesus knows before He prays for anybody, speaks to anybody, He's got to go be with His Father. Spend time in prayer. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, is quoted as having said, I don't know if he said it, but people quote him as having said, I've got so much to do today, I need to spend the first three hours in prayer or I'll I'll never get it all done. How's that for a way to manage your schedule? I, I think that this practice of Jesus should be a model for us. Listen, do what you need to do to get quiet time with your Heavenly Father. I, I don't think there's a biblical mandate that you have to pray and spend time in the Word in the morning, but I think it's a tremendous way to start your day. Those of you that know me know that I'm, that I'm a night owl. I'm not a morning person, although as, as I've gotten older, night, night owl means like 1030, right? So I'm trying to shift and, and do better in the mornings, right? I've been getting up earlier lately. I've been getting up. 6.30 in the morning. Now Mitchell Tree is like, I'm wrapping up my first job by 6.30. But for me, that's early. I'm learning to get up, to spend time with the Lord, right? to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, to, to sit myself before God before I begin my day. We have to find that time whether you're a, a night owl or, or an early bird. Listen, I, I say this humbly to you as your pastor. Getting up, feeling rushed, Immediately getting on your phone, responding to messages, checking your schedule, rushing out the door, or rushing down into your office in the basement. I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I think you're setting yourself up for a day that it will be flustered, that will be rushed, that will be distracted. Brothers and sisters, take time. Take time to be with the Lord. Let Him set your foundation. Let Him ground you in his love let him set your priorities for the day for the week for the year we see in verse 36 that once everybody else starts waking up the pressure builds right they can't find jesus they've got needs for him and simon and the other three go looking for him they find jesus in verse 37 and they're like jesus what are you doing why, why did you leave? Everyone's looking for you. People are there. We got people lined up. We got a number system in place. We need you to come back, right? There's demons to cast out. There's people to hear, heal. We gotta preach the good news. And Jesus says, "No, we're we're not staying here. We're gonna go on to other towns. I need to preach there also. That's why I came." And I can imagine Simon, because I identify with Simon, I can imagine him being like, no, 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 Lord, you don't understand. Let me explain this again. This is my hometown. I know these people, right? We got a good setup here. There's people coming from all around, famous spread. People are here. We can just stay here, Lord, right? Like you can have all the ministry you want right here. And there's people that are coming. They have genuine needs and word is going to spread. We don't even have to travel. They'll come to us. There's no reason to go anywhere, Why doesn't Jesus stay in Simon's house? He says later in his ministry that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He could have stayed there. He could have had a comfortable ministry. He could have reached hundreds of people. Simon's mother-in-law would have just been cooking for them every day. The needs were overwhelming. There's lots of people. You think, how could he just leave? How could he just leave all those people in need? By the way, Anybody who thinks that God's will is always to heal everyone has never read the Gospels because Jesus leaves hundreds of people unhealed. Listen, Jesus did not come to start a healing ministry. That's not why He came. He's a Savior, not a miracle worker. And we see in this account Him maintaining His messianic mission. In in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, verse 45, He will unpack the ultimate reason why he came. He said the the ultimate reason he came was to give his life as a ransom for many, but he had work to do prior to laying down his life on the cross and dying to reconcile us back to God. Prior to his death, his earthly mission was to preach. To preach is that word that we heard last week. It means to proclaim. It means to be a herald. Remember that verse in in chapter 1, verse 14? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was a herald, a herald of the good news, calling people to turn, calling people to believe, calling people to follow him. That was the purpose, not the ultimate purpose of his life, but that was the purpose of his earthly ministry to prepare people for his death. To prepare people for the day when He wouldn't be there. He needed other people to hear the good news. Not just so that He could draw a large crowd, but so that He could make disciples. He wasn't looking to build a movement. He was looking to grow followers of Him. Disciples who would spread the Word, herald the Gospel, and expand the Kingdom, and build a church after He was gone. Listen, Jesus in His ministry said no no to lots of pressing needs, lots of urgent requests, lots of really good opportunities, but he said no to stay on his mission. Look at what he said in John's Gospel, verse 638. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So that's what I'm all about, is the will of my Father. In, in chapter 17, verse 4, he, he's praying, he says, God, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave me to do. Jesus continually had to set himself on his mission, not on the needs and the wants and the urging of the people around him, but the mission from the Father. And you and I have that same mission. We have the same mission of Jesus, to obey the Father and make disciples. But yet so often, like Jesus, our days, our calendars, our bank accounts are controlled or feel like they're controlled by dozens of other pressing needs from the people around us. Listen, and to stay on mission for you and I means we need to resist the tyranny of the urgent, right? You guys know that expression, that phrase that's been written about? The, the, the urgent needs of your day to day feel, feel like, a, like a tyranny pressing down on you. I can't possibly make my own decisions. I can't possibly schedule my own days. I can't possibly decide what I do and don't want to do because the urgent needs of my children, the urgent needs of my extended family, the urgent needs of, of all the people I manage at work, the urgent needs of those around me are pressing and pushing. But urgent needs are not always important needs and they're not always fulfilling the mission of the Father. I don't know about you, but I felt like this week was, was kind of a strange week, one of those weeks where you have to stop and think, right? It appears that, though, for a period that, that the entire nation of Canada was on fire and that we were just going to be engulfed in smoke. And I was like, okay, Lord, maybe this is the end. Maybe this is like the fire that just ends it all and the whole world burns up and we just got to get used to, to breathing smoke until Jesus returns, right? And you sort of stop and think. We're in the midst of, of this wild drought, and I feel like that, that little pity, pitiful rain we got on Friday night was just enough to make my lawn angry, right, and just more thirsty. Some of you guys know that, that you know, I, I enjoy taking care of my lawn. It was beautiful three weeks ago. Now it looks like a burnt piece of rye toast, right? I, I would love nothing more than to take three days, well, maybe not nothing more, but I would... Take three days off of work, right? Like get a few hundred dollars, get some topsoil, get to install some sprinklers, you know, like reseed, like you know, like I don't want my lawn to look that way, is that, is that am I going to invest in that? A bunch of my other neighbors got sprinklers out, water's expensive in New Freedom, is that what I invest in? Is that, do, do, I, do I pour myself into that? I, I, for, for years probably I've needed to reorganize and build shelves in my shed. I took three hours yesterday. Some of you are like, what a waste of time. It was fun. It was fulfilling, right? Took everything out, put shelves in, reorganized, threw stuff away, put everything back in. But that was a three hour investment. Was that a wise use of my time? Is the Father pleased with me? I actually hope and believe He is because I think God calls us to take care, to be good stewards of what He's given us. But you get my point. There's all of these issues and needs and things pressing on around us, right? Summers are busy. You're going to be traveling, you're going to be at the pool, there's going to be camps and vacations and people visiting and opportunities. Oh, do you want to get away? I just got a, 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 you know, a beach house that we can go away this weekend. you got family needs, you have your bosses who are going to be asking you to work overtime. You have to find some time to invest in your kids. Kids, you have to find some time to spend with your parents. You have friends that are in need family members that may be sick. And look, I'm not saying which ones of these things are good or bad, but here's what I'm saying. Each of us need to be on our knees before the Father, spending time with Him and determine, God, what does it look like for me to maintain the mission of Christ in my life? Where do I invest time, energy, money? And the only way to answer that is for you to be in prayer before the Lord. We know the mission, obey the Father, make disciples. How do you carry that out in a way that honors Him? And yes, you need to rest. And yes, you need to enjoy the life that God has given you. But remember this, Jesus said no to hundreds of people because that wasn't the right mission. He had to go to the next town. Like Jesus, are we accomplishing the work that God has given us to do? Are we living as disciples? Are we making disciples? Are we investing in those that we love? Are we spreading the good news? Are we prioritizing the right things? And look, go go to the beach this summer. Go camping this summer. Take off work. Go to the pool. Have fun. But, But those are not opportunities for you to check out of the Lord's mission for your life. Those are not opportunities for you to be selfish and to turn inward. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. Verse 39, he travels all around the regions of Galilee. He's proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues. He's casting out demons. And we get this little vignette in verse 40, this one story. And we'll wrap up with this third story of Jesus guarding his messianic identity. Listen to this: what happened with this man, a leper. He's got this awful skin disease. In verse 40, it says, A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity. so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So this man falls on his knees before Jesus, crying out, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Statement full of faith, the man's heart full of faith, seeming to trust and know the power and authority of Jesus. Make me clean there. It's not just physical healing, but in the culture, there was ceremonial cleanliness that was at stake. And, and conditions like, like ongoing bleeding or skin diseases made you unclean, made you unfit to worship at the temple, to be fully engaged in the community with God's people. And so the man's heart is to be engaged, to reconnect. In the verse 40, 41, Jesus sees the man, says that he's moved with pity. It means he's, he's deeply compassionate. He reaches out, he touches the man, and he says, I'm willing be clean and immediately the man is healed his skin is restored and it's fascinating because in that culture you weren't supposed to touch a leper it could make you unclean but listen when Jesus touches you you don't infect him when Jesus touches you his purity his righteousness his power floods and fills your life and pushes out every sin and every area of uncleanliness and we get this peculiar ending to the story. Jesus sends him away, and it says he sternly warns him, he charges him, don't talk about this, don't tell anybody, go directly to the, the priests, follow the Levitical law, make a sacrifice at the temple for your, for your cleansing, for your ritualistic cleansing, so that the man would be enabled to re-engage in worship, re-engage in fellowship with the community, and also, Jesus says, as a witness to the healing, right, to validate That that truly, yes, this man was registered as a leper. Now he's been healed. Jesus of Nazareth has done this. But instead of, of listening, he does the opposite, right? You tell your kids... Don't talk about this. This It's a private family matter. And the next day, your neighbors are asking you about it. Right? You tell them not to talk about it. They just want to talk about it. And so this man, who who is an overjoyed blabbermouth, he goes out and he's just like spreading the word. He can't control himself. He's telling everybody what's happened. And all of a sudden now, fame of Jesus spreads and things get out of control. And Jesus can no longer go into the towns. He's got to stay out in the unpopulated places to minister and, and to, to teach there. And people, people still come to Him. People still come to Him. But now Jesus is, is limited. There's so many people following Him, pressing in on Him, trying to hear Him, get a glimpse of Him. He can no longer eat and sleep and travel and do all the things that He wanted to do. His, his ministry has become debilitated because the word has spread and the crowds are so big. Nothing draws a crowd like a, tra- like a crowd, right? And we see here that while we would think well, this is amazing, everybody's going to find out, Jesus is trying to stop His fame from spreading. He's constantly trying to guard the spread of His messianic identity. Many theologians call this theme in Mark, which is over and over in the book of Mark, protecting the messianic secret there's this sense in in mark's gospel that his messianic identity is supposed to be a secret and all over mark's gospel jesus is ordering demons not to reveal his identity he's telling people that he just healed don't talk about it when the disciples finally become convinced and jesus says you are the christ son of the living god jesus says yeah don't tell anybody don't tell anybody jesus is guarding his messianic identity to slow down three problems let me, let me try to unpack this to you, for you. First of all, there's the problem of logistics, okay? Even when Jesus was making every attempt to slow the spread of his fame, he could barely move around and eat. In chapter 2, there's so many people packed into a house to hear him that a bunch of guys literally ripped the roof off to get their friend in to see Jesus. In chapter 3, the crowds are crushing him at the Sea of Galilee. He's got to prepare a boat to get in to escape. In chapter 6, there's so many people coming and going. It says that him and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. And so he takes his disciples away. They, they're literally running away from the crowd to get away from them. The crowds find them anyway. And that's where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And this is with him guarding his identity. This is with him trying to keep people quiet. Where he can't travel to towns. He's got to stay in the countryside. Right? And this is only after one chapter. Imagine if he didn't ask people not to talk about it. So he's slowing down, number one, the problem of logistics. Number two, there's the problem of messaging. He knows that while word travels fast, it's not always the right word. Because there's such a thing as rumors and misinformation and false expectations that are not going to help his ministry. You've heard it said, there's no such thing as bad press. Eh, There is bad press, right? Jesus wants to hear about him from him in the right way, from his disciples who have been taught and trained. He certainly does not want the demons to be the ones handling his messaging, right? That's not a good look. He wants to make disciples. He's not interested in becoming popular. He doesn't want people to follow him just to get healed or see a miracle, and there are many people who did that, and Jesus calls them out for that. He wants people to follow him because they trust him as Messiah. But even the people that followed him and identified him as Messiah got the messaging wrong, Some thought that he was there to bring political revolution. In fact, there's an account where people try to crown him as king on earth. And Jesus has to evade them and slip out of the crowd. Because that's not why he came. Jesus didn't want crowds. He wanted disciples who would follow him, listen to him, submit him, join him in spreading the gospel and making disciples. But thirdly, there's the the problem of timing. Not Not just logistics and messaging, but timing. Right, The word spreads, meaning popularity and increased following, increased crowds, and those crowds catch the attention of the Roman and the Jewish leaders. And in that day, grassroots movements were not looked upon favorably, they were seen as revolts. And Jesus' popularity means that he will soon be a threat. Think about this. Jesus went out of his way to try to stop his fame, to try to stop the crowds, to try to stop people from 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 spreading his identity. And he still only lasted three years. Only three years. Until they arrested him and executed him. Imagine if he had done nothing. If he had done nothing. He would have been killed after like a month. Right? And then what would have happened? The disciples wouldn't have been trained. Their hearts wouldn't have been transformed. They wouldn't have been convinced. They wouldn't have understood the ways of the Messiah. They wouldn't have been ready to launch Christianity. To launch the church. To continue to make Jesus disciples Jesus knows that his death is the father's plan he knows it's coming he knows that eventually the crowds will get too big that the Jewish leaders and the Romans will put will put him to stop he knows that this is what's going to happen but he's got to hold it off he's got to hold off his arrest until the right time he's got to have at least 3 years to get this Motley crew ready to be the apostles to teach them to train them to get them ready for his death to herald his death and his resurrection Now listen, I fear that in many ways today, in the twenty first century, we have the opposite problem. I fear that that Jesus' name and his work and his salvation isn't spreading fast enough. There are too many people and and don't just don't just don't just harp at the, the, the younger people, the younger generation. There are too many people young and old with no biblical background with no knowledge of God, with no understanding of who Jesus was. And in many ways, rather than to slow down the spread of the name of Jesus, we need to do all that we can to increase the spread of His name. But in so doing, we also need to guard His message and guard His identity that what is being spread is the true biblical Jesus. We need to share Jesus not as some kind of love and peace hippie, not as some kind of miracle worker, genie in a bottle, not as some kind of political revolutionary, but as the one. And the only Savior of the world. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the one that transforms lives. He is the one that will return one day and transform the whole world. That is the message that we need to live, that we need to spread, that we need to speak, that we need to act on. But I also want to give a word of caution. And and I think we need to be actively spreading the good news of Jesus. We need to be maintaining and upholding the true and biblical Jesus. But I, I don't think it's our job to be the message police. I don't think it's our job to be the message police for the whole world or for all of social media. And, and re- remember, you remember that Super Bowl ad? That Super Bowl ad, it, it, was, it was like towards the end of the second half, I think. It was, it was about Jesus. and It was like the He Gets Us campaign. It's still out there. There's still ads and website, and it caused controversy, right? Why? Because people were suspicious. Why is this ad on the Super Bowl? Christians were suspicious. What's the agenda behind this? What's the motivation? What's the messaging? And, and I'm like, Jesus' name just got out to millions of people watching the Super Bowl. The Chosen series. My, my family loves the Chosen series. I think it's exceptionally well done, very biblically faithful. People have concerns about the, the chosen series. Well, what influenced that certain scene? And and were those words from here or from there? Famous preachers that get they get traction online. They they're, they begin to start up a, a a movement, and sometimes they don't line up with my own convictions or your convictions on secondary doctrinal issues. Now now look, don't don't. I mean, you can if you want, but but. You know, some of you guys are gonna look up some of these things and are and are gonna say, wait a minute, are you defending this? Are you promoting? I'm not defending or promoting any of these cultural expressions or famous preachers or media campaigns of this or that. All I'm saying is this: Jesus didn't go around looking for demons to cast out. He addressed them when they came at him. He addressed them when they were in his synagogue, when they had impacted the people around him, when they came up and confronted him. In Mark chapter 9. John has gotten all worked up, one of Jesus' disciples. He's all worked up because he says, Jesus, there's somebody that doesn't follow us, but he's out there casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of our followers. And John says, should we go stop him? And Jesus says, leave him alone. Leave him alone, because the one who is not against us is for us. The Apostle Paul, you read the letter to the Philippians, he's in jail. He says, there's people out there preaching with Selfish motivations out of rivalry, trying to cause me more suffering and harm while I'm in jail. And you know what Paul says? He says, Christ is being preached, and in that I rejoice. And so there's discernment here, is what I'm trying to say. Let's faithfully proclaim Jesus to everyone we can, as much as we can. Let's focus. On what is happening in front of us, with our co workers, with our children, with our neighborhoods, in our house, in our church, in our town, with our friends and our family, right? And so let's spread the message of Jesus. Let's be faithful. Let's guard his identity and be as biblically faithful as we can be. And let's remember that whoever is not against us is for us. And if Christ's name is, is being proclaimed, let's rejoice. This is the Messiah's work, friends. We're going to close out with a time of worship and a time of prayer and meditation. And as the worship team comes up to lead us, I just want to call us to, to come to Jesus' feet, to come in faith, to come humbly, to come open, to receive from Him, to hear from Him, to be led by Him and whatever that looks like for you this week. I think, uh, is it okay if I don't ask people to, to stand? You can stand if you want to stand. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Because I think for some of us, this, this is a quiet time of kneeling, of sitting. And so let's, let's pray together. Let's, let's bow our heads. Father, we, we come humbly. We come hungry. We come eager. We come empty and lost and hopeless we come frustrated we come discouraged we come overwhelmed God we we come filled with thoughts and doubts and fears we come far too interested by the pleasures and the leading of the world God we ask you to lead us to lead us now during this time we submit to you as the one who has full and final authority over our lives you are savior you are Lord We submit to you and and ask you to give us help and grace to be your disciple. That through faith in your death and through your resurrection, that your spirit would fill us. We thank you that you're with us through all the ups and downs, through all the highs and lows. Keep us focused. Lord God, keep us focused this morning that we could be a people that fulfill the Messiah's mission. Help us to stay on mission in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces. Help us to to live life with the Father. Lord, to dedicate that time, whether it's morning, noon, and night, or all three. God, to be in your presence, to listen to you. Not to be pushed and pulled by our own needs and interests or those of the people around us. We want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to spread your word, to spread the Messiah's true identity. Help that to begin in our own hearts. And so now as we worship, as we declare our faith in you, that that we belong to you and you belong to us, that, that Jesus, you're mine. Help it to begin there. That moment of reassurance and strength and truth for who Christ is and what he has done for me. And only then can we go out on mission. Only then can we go out to be a faithful disciple. Spirit, be with us as we pray, as we sing, as we meditate. Guide us and lead us, we ask in Jesus' name.